Welcome everyone to our Polaris podcast. I am Jeremy Whitbeck, a partner of the Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, and we have with us today Jeff Powell. So Jeff is our Chief Investment Officer and Managing Partner. Jeff, great to talk to you uh, again today. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. So Jeff, uh, we got a lot of feedback on the uh, financial literature podcast that we did a little while back. And the remarks were, it was great, uh, the way that you broke down the terms, um, certainly uh, helped explain things in a way that people hadn't heard before and uh, gave them information regarding some of these terms that have been thrown around and maybe they were just too embarrassed or just didn't take the time to look up on what they really meant. Um, and so on that theme, um, people have asked that we kind of take a step even further back and go through some of the uh, terms that we throw out there very loosely, expecting everyone to fully understand what they mean and realizing that not everyone understands fully what they mean. And so I'm hoping uh, that in our conversation today that we can break down some of these more common terms to make sure everyone understands fully what's being referenced when we talk about them. And so to start off that, um, probably one of the most uh, used terms and most spoke about is common stock. So Jeff, what is a common stock? Yeah, so when you're um, when we're talking about common stock, you're, you're actually purchasing uh, equity uh, in a company. So um, it's just as simple as uh, saying that you're going to be a business owner, so to speak. So when you buy shares of, say, McDonald's or Coke or you know Amazon, Microsoft, whatever, you're a physical owner of that company. And as, as the company does better you know, with, with earnings or, or you know, has more sales or whatever, uh, will drive the stock price up. Uh, if they don't do as well, the, the stock price will go down. But you're physically a shareholder um, in a company by buying a common stock, which is also referred to when you hear us talking about equity and stock, those are, are interchangeable phrases uh, within the financial industry. Yeah, and uh, and certainly uh, why uh, when we invest in them, we're looking for companies that have upside and growth. The other thing that I think is interesting is that word common. I don't know that a lot of people understand that that's actually referencing where your placehold is if the company were to go through financial difficulties. So common stocks at the bottom of that totem pole, meaning that they would first pay off their debt and their preferred stock, and then finally the common stock. So that means that common stocks, your riskiest, but also hopefully your highest returning as well. And, and Jeff, on that similar note, um, we have preferred stocks, so a little bit different than common stock. What is a preferred stock? Well, preferred stock is uh, kind of a, uh, a hybrid, if you really want to throw it out there, of um, a common stock and bonds. So, so it's basically um, shares of a preferred stock uh, have a specific dividend uh, that it will always get uh, during the lifetime of it. It's got a maturity date to it, and it has a, uh, a price that the, the actual preferred stock will mature with. Uh, so it's it's kind of a a debt instrument, uh, typically providing higher income. But as you said, in the in the big scheme of things, a common shareholder gets to vote, uh, proxy votes, things of that nature, to vote on uh, bigger decisions. A preferred stockholder does not, um, and the preferred stockholder is down the chain. If the company were to file for bankruptcy, it's below a debt holder. So it's kind of in between uh, with regard to the risk levels. You typically get a higher income as a result of that. 
but uh, you also don't see the price appreciation if the company does as well. Yeah, and with the preferred stock, do, does the company have to make the interest payments like they do for a bond? Well, I have, I mean, the answer is no, they don't. Um, it, it would be rare for them not to, uh, but it certainly has happened. And so obviously when a company is having uh, financial difficulties, uh, you'll find that a preferred shareholder is at much greater risk to lose out on income stream uh, than a debt holder um, in, in those circumstances. But uh, it's a pretty rare thing for um, a preferred stock not to pay. Uh, but it certainly has it certainly has happened. Yeah, gotcha. It makes a lot of sense. And uh, on a similar thread, the last one that's something that we could talk about is an American Depository receipt or an ADR. Jeff, what is that? What? Is, why do people have ADRs in their portfolio? So uh, the the an ADR again is it, there's a little bit of a hint in your question uh, when you talk about American Depository receipt. So what this is, is foreign companies. Well, let's just use Sony as an example. Uh, Sony is obviously a Japanese company, um, but they want their shares to be traded on our markets. Uh, so making it easier for Americans to uh, buy the stock because A, it will be trading when our markets are open, not when uh, their markets are open. And also uh, tends to hedge, not always, but tends to hedge uh, the currency risk that's involved uh, between uh, owning a, a, a foreign company. So an, uh, an American depository receipt uh, in this situation is basically uh, foreign stock deposited in um, US uh, organizations and then they're reissued new shares of that as an American depository receipt. Gotcha. And what's interesting is I think a lot of people may have actually held an ADR and not really realized it because it looks and uh, it trades just like any other stock, but technically uh, it's an ADR, not a common stock. And, exactly. Yeah, and je just kind of go on the other side. So we've talked a lot about more of the common equity type holdings. Um, if you don't mind sharing or shedding some light on some of the uh, fixed income type holdings. So the most common uh, being a bond. Jeff, what is a bond? So we have bills, notes, and bonds. Uh, the, all that means is the duration of the actual debt holding that you have. So if you're talking about a treasury bill versus a treasury note versus a treasury bond, uh, when it really comes down to it, you're talking duration. So a bond being the longest, a note being intermediate term, and a bill is short term. And so uh, again, when we talk about, uh, you know, again, just pure definitions, bonds are debt. So the, the company is borrowing money uh, from investors. Uh, that can be the U.S. government. Whenever the U.S. government is issuing treasuries, they're borrowing money. So when you hear about us having a deficit, that deficit has to be filled. Um, so again, when we, when we as a uh, country, spend more money than what we're actually receiving, that creates debt uh, through a deficit situation and they're issuing treasuries as a means to pay for that, an IOU, so to speak. Uh, corporations, municipalities, all do the same thing, uh, just like you going out and getting a mortgage. Uh, and so, uh, again, uh, if you're going out getting a mortgage, they're gonna look at your credit rating. And so when we're looking at that, you know, obviously the US government is considered to be the most risk-free thing. So you're gonna see those tending to be the lowest yielding 
Um, and again, we talked a little bit about flipping coupons and some of our past areas and so on. Well, again, treasury or all bonds have coupons. Coupons are the actual payments themselves for that fixed income product. Um, so, and again, when you talk, you said fixed income early, Jeremy, fixed income and bonds, just like we were saying, common stock and equity, those are interchangeable things. And the reason why it's called fixed income is that you have issued a bond that's going to pay a specific dollar amount every single year until that bond matures. Uh, and that's why it's called fixed income because the income is fixed. The income's not going to change. The price can change because the value of that underlying payment can become more or less valuable depending on where interest rates are. Uh, but uh, the fixed income marketplace, uh, again, is as big as the stock market. Most people don't realize it. Um, and you have uh, as much trading there as you do on the uh, the equity markets, the, just the prices don't move as much, and it's less sexy to talk about, you know, when you're turning on CNBC or something else along those lines to sit there and say, "Ooh, the bond market moved three basis points today." That's that's not an exciting news story. And, and Jeff, with the yield being so low on what bonds pay, something that's uh, received a lot of attention are high yield bonds. And so, what are high yield bonds? So uh, when we go back, we were talking before about how, um, you know, different people getting mortgages and, and, and so on. You know, if you've got a credit rating in the 800s, you're going to get a much lower interest rate uh, from a bank than somebody that has a 500 uh, FICO, uh, FICO score. So high yield, uh, we in the financial industry like to retitle things at times, but uh, high yield is simply talking about junk bonds. Um, uh, from days past in the 80s. So these are your least creditworthy uh, companies. So um, investment grade is considered to be anything that's triple B and above. So it, it starts off at triple A, goes down to double A, single A, triple B. Those are all considered to be investment grade. When you get below triple B rated, so double B and below is considered to be high yield. Uh, you're getting paid a lot more money but you're getting paid a lot more money because the person or, or the company that you're uh, investing in or lending money to really specifically is more likely, it doesn't mean that's going to happen, but more likely uh, to default on their debt than a more creditworthy company. So you get to get paid more for that. And that's why they call it a high income bond uh, rather than just a regular corporate bond. Yeah. And Jeff, um, with that understanding that these are your quote unquote higher risk companies because they have a lower credit rating i think the other thing that's uh interesting when we look at it is we'll notice that high yield bonds tend to lose value if the economy starts sputtering or starts stalling much like equities as opposed to your more uh conservative or your safer bonds your investment grade bonds tend to go up in value when the economy starts sputtering in anticipation of interest rating uh decreases so it's been really interesting to watch how those behaviors play out and how even in the bond market you can have very different reactions based on the, the type of qualities that they have. Well, let's talk about that for just a minute, Jeremy, because it is an important uh, distinction of what you're bringing to the table. So if the economy is slowing down, for example, um, you know, obviously stocks are going to sputter because if we were to go into a recession, for example, uh, there's less money to go around to all the companies that are uh, publicly traded. So mm -hmm. the way I kind of like to think about it is, you know, imagine that you and I are sitting at a table, there's two glasses of water and we remove one, okay? 
doesn't mean that we're both going thirsty, uh, but it means there's less water to go around. And so in that situation, you know, the average company in the stock market is going to go down. Uh, but also, if you've got higher risk companies uh, that are going to have higher risk of financial trouble, then that increases the chance of them not being able to pay their debt uh, and, uh, and defaulting on their, their fixed income. So that's one of the reasons why they tend to be, uh, you know, strongly correlated to the market is, you know, good economy, good stock market means a lower risk of high yield defaulting because the economy is doing great. So these more risky companies are doing fine within those market environments. But when the economy turns south or it becomes more questionable, you know, the, the outlook is, is less, uh, you're less able to read it, then yeah, things get riskier. And then what are people going to do? They're going to fly to safety. And mm -hmm. flying to safety oftentimes is U.S. Treasuries uh, being, you know, oftentimes intermediate or long term where they're saying, OK, you know, I'm going to take a break from the stock market right now. I'm going to move. I'm going to park my money for a little while. And these, you know, really risk free things you know, called Treasuries. Well, when you get more buyers than sellers there, the price is going to go up and the yields are going to go down. But you get a big push in price so that, you know, first in. So the stock market's dropping. But my treasury prices are going up. So I'm making money in a bad market. And you get more and more and more people pushing into that, then it gets even more uh, frothy at the tops uh, within the treasury market. So you can see the treasury market all over the place. I mean, in fact, if you look at the Great Recession, uh, long-term treasuries were the only, uh, out of 40 different investment groups, was the only area of the market that made money in 2008 was long-term uh, treasuries. Um, and that was it. So uh, we really want to be smart about how uh, we are investing money and making sure that we understand correlations of our investments. So you don't want to sit there and have a high risk equity portfolio and think that, you know, by buying high yield fixed income that you're lowering your risk. You're really not. Uh, it is a highly correlated investment and will move up and down with your equities. Yeah, and I think that's an important point. And one of the mistakes I've seen a lot of people uh, make is that they will think that by moving from common stocks to high yield bonds that they're doing themselves a favor in terms of if the market sells off. And in reality, to your point, because they're so highly correlated, you haven't really removed that that market risk that you're trying to. You've just uh, shifted from one asset to another that's going to participate. That's exactly right. And, and there's other... Uh, products, you know, there are things called mortgage-backed securities, other things of that nature that act like bonds. So you get income from it, but are also very co uh, highly correlated to uh, the equity marketplace. And again, uh, certain things that people really don't understand the risk levels of them until that risk shows up and starts really hammering the overall value uh, of their portfolio. So it's one of these things that you really truly need to understand you know, what the underlying investments that you're involved with are doing and understand the correlation uh, of the, the different assets that you have within your portfolio. Otherwise, you might wake up and, and really you know, have financially harmed yourself without really realizing the risk that you were taking within your portfolio. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so, Jeff, on that uh, theme, so there's some broader market uh, terms that we use. Uh, the first one being a bull market. What is a bull market? You know, it, 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 bull market simply means that the markets are going up. Uh, bear markets, uh, the, con uh, the, the contra statement there 
uh, are that uh, the markets are going down. Um, the only thing, that, and I've tried to look up history of, of both of these and I've heard uh, a lot of different speculation to them, but you know, essentially, again, uh, me being a, a word nerd and, and liking to understand word derivations, when you're looking at something like this, typically, you know, a bull's horns go slightly up. So that was kind of the thought process of using a bull. Um, not really sure where the bear came from. I mean, maybe it's just that, you know, most people don't like bears because they, you know, they don't want to be chased and eaten by one or something along those lines. But uh, I really don't, I've heard a lot of different speculation on on where both uh, both those terms came from. But simply bull market going up, you know, we like bulls, bears, bad. You know, we don't like bears. They, they simply mean that the markets are, are generally going down in value. Gotcha. And, and so on that note, um, there are secular trends and then there are cycles. And I know this is something that we talk a lot about in Polaris marketing uh, literature and in webinars. Jeff, what is the difference between a secular trend versus a cycle? Yeah, so we, we got to be careful with uh, secular can mean a lot of things. Secular obviously has a religious connotation to it, but it also uh, the, the true derivation of, of what we're talking about with definition here is uh, length of time. So when we're talking about secular, we're talking long-term bull market or long-term bear market. And generally a secular bull market um, means that, it doesn't mean that there's not recessions, it doesn't mean there's not corrections, it means that the long-term trend of the market is up. Uh, whereas a secular bear market typically means that it's sideways to down. Uh, so the last secular bear market we had was from 2000 to 2013 where had you invested in 2000 uh, and you woke up in 2013, you made no money whatsoever. And there were two major corrections during that time period. We are right now in a secular bull market. And that secular bull market again began in 2013. Some people would argue uh, that it began in 2009. Uh, definitionally, it can have happened that way because you basically have had to break into new highs in order to start a secular bull market. Uh, so that's why we're using a 2013 date, not a 2009 date. Uh, but the last one that we had was from 1982 to 2000. It was an 18-year time period in which the markets went up. Yeah, and and what's really interesting about this, Jeff, and um, something that I don't think is understood enough is that understanding the secular trend really gives you a good idea of where things are headed. And to your point, there's going to be a lot of cycles within those secular trends, but certainly you want to invest differently in a secular bull market than a secular bear market. Do you mind going into a little bit of how that influences investment decisions and why we pay attention to those types of things? Yeah, let's, absolutely. So, I mean, if we're talking about, uh, let's just use the last secular bear market that we had. Um, started off in 2000, um, a, you know, first drop, the first cycle, uh, the down cycle. So we had a secular bear market, but we had a, a bear cycle inside of a secular bear market. So from 2000 to 2003, secular bear market, uh, but with also a bull cycle or bear cycle inside of a secular bear market. Um, and then from 2003 to 2007, uh, we had a bull cycle inside of a secular bear market. So a uh, generally up market, even inside of it. Uh, so again, if you look at what went on uh, with the last secular bear market we had prior to that was 66 to 82, there were five major downturns and then they rebounded and then it fell again and then it rebounded. 
Um, this last one, we just had two major downturns. We had the 2000 to 2003 correction, and we had the fall of 2007 to the spring of 2009, great recession. In a secular bear market, we are gonna have to be much more tactical. We're gonna have to really understand the short-term cycles, what's going on within them, how defensive we need to be, and then really, again, uh, shifting gears in order to take advantage of the good times. Because again, if you just sat there and were buy and hold from 2000 to 2013, you made no money. What you did do was lost your buying power. Uh, if you're talking about having a, an average inflation rate in this country, historically around 3%, you went a decade and a half almost without making money, but you lost more than a third of your buying power during that 13 year time cycle. So the only way that you can keep up with that or even grow your money is to get defensive during the bear cycles and get aggressive during the bull cycles. Um, and those things, again, tend to move in longer trends. So we, we need to be taking advantage of that. In a secular bull market, we tend to be less tactical. Um, so if you kind of think about sailing, for example, if the wind is coming directly at you, um, you have to, in order to get upwind, you have to tack your ship a lot. So you go off to the side and then you, you know, you're you going off to the right for a while and then you tack and you go to the left for a while, uh, but you're basically going kind of at a 45 degree angle at the wind in order to go upwind. Um, with, when the wind's at your back, you just fill up your jib and you let the, the wind push you forward and you really don't have to make as much changes. Yes, you have to make little changes here and there, but the trend tends to stay behind you for a lot longer period of time. That's where we are right now. We are in a secular bull market and we are in a bull cycle within a secular bull market. The one thing that we really need to understand also is these trends tend to be long. Like I said, the last one was from 1982 to 2000. The average secular bull market lasts 14 years. And keep in mind, we've used this phrase before also, is that bull markets climb a wall of worry. Um, we've talked about that and, and we've written about it you know, there is a reason to not invest every single year. Um, and there's people that, oh, the market's too high in value, they're, the, they're this, this, and this, you know, there's always a reason not to invest. Uh, but we don't invest in stock markets, we invest in actual individual stocks. So that's one thing to kind of keep in mind is that there will always be areas of the market where there's value uh, and growth. And so we want to be able to take advantage of both of those things. And so um, in order to take advantage of it, you need to understand leadership, uh, which is why we are tactical in nature to move our portfolios around in order to take advantage of those things. Yeah, Jeff, that was a great answer. And I really enjoyed the imagery that you gave of the uh, the sailboat with uh, the difference between going into the wind versus having the wind at your back and a great uh, visual representation of the difference between a bear versus a full uh, secular market. So as always, Jeff, thank you very much for uh, breaking these down. I uh, have a feeling this is going to be another one of our uh, favorite podcasts. Um, just uh, even talking with you on terms that we throw around, it's always interesting just hearing not only uh, what they mean, but also where some of the sources of the words come that we just uh, uh, don't think about anymore since they've uh, become second nature to, uh, to discuss. But with that, Jeff, thank you for your time and uh, appreciate uh, as always, your uh, your expertise in these areas. Thank you. And so, and to everyone with us, thank you so much for uh, giving us your time. And as always, be happy, be safe, and be healthy.
Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, is a federally registered investment advisor. The information, statements, and opinions expressed in this material are provided for general information only and are subject to change without notice. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, is not intended as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security, and is not intended as individual or specific advice. It should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, if necessary, seek professional advice. Polaris Wealth does not offer professional, legal, or tax advice. All information contained herein is believed to be accurate, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Diversification does not assure a profit or protect against loss. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, unless a client service agreement is in place.